Okay, let's uh, move into a time of study. Let's just bow our hearts again, shall we, as we just commit this this study, this new year again into the Lord's hands. Father, we thank you that, Lord, in you, your mercies are new every morning. Oh, Lord, great is your faithfulness. And we thank you that you brought us to the start of a new year. Uh, Father, we pray that in some ways it will be indeed a new chapter in our own lives as we walk forward uh, with you, as you lead us, as you continue that work that you've begun in us. Father, this morning as we break the bread of your word, Lord, we pray that you give us the spiritual food and the sustenance we need, uh, Lord, to sustain us through this day and this week ahead of us. Uh, But Lord, give us the desire, we pray, uh, to read your word daily, to study it, to allow your word to speak to us, to change our understanding and the way that we look at things. Give us, Lord, the confidence that we're going to see that John had, Lord, in you and in your promises. Um, So, Lord, just bless this time of study now, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are carrying on in our study of uh, First John. Come as far as First John chapter 3, so that's where we're going to pick it up. Just a quick reminder, though, um, for you that John gives reasons for writing. Uh, in fact, there's five specific reasons that John gives us for the things that he's written. Um, the first one is that uh, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, John says, that you also may have fellowship with us. So John writes that we would have fellowship. That's such a vital ingredient. And I guess after a year like we've just gone through, we start to appreciate fellowship even more. Uh, when suddenly the ability to meet together and to fellowship as we'd like to do is taken away, suddenly we appreciate the value of it. It's the same as anything, isn't it? You don't often appreciate what you've got until you can't have it any longer. Um, but fellowship, John says, so, so important, and he wants us to have fellowship. Uh, and this is why he's writing to us, that we would have that desire. It's not just having the ability to fellowship, but having the desire also. Um, then he says, these things we write unto you, that your joy may be full. So John is also writing, not just that we would have fellowship, but that in all of these things, we wouldn't just be happy. Happy is a very transient thing. It's based upon circumstances, based upon our feelings and emotions, all those things. But John writes that our joy might be full. Now, joy is something so much deeper than just a surface emotion. It's a state of heart and mind that can't be shaken by circumstances. And that can only truly come through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Of course, we were, we're told, uh, Paul tells us, um, that the fruit of the Spirit, part of that fruit is joy itself. John also says these things I write unto you, that you sin not. Um, James hammered that point, as if you remember our study through James. Um, James, of course, we mentioned, has grew up in the family with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' earthly brothers uh, and missed that opportunity uh, before the cross to really get to know who Jesus truly was. Only afterwards does James become a believer himself. And he writes as if to say, look, you know, I wasted so much time. Now that I know I'm not going to waste a moment in building and developing and maintaining this relationship with Jesus, my savior, not my brother. He never cast him, uh, puts himself in that position of, of stamping his authority or position, just simply recognize himself as a fellow servant. Peter, similarly, we've studied through Peter and now John here doing the same thing, saying we should love God so much that we don't want to sin. 
you know, and he says, I write these things to you to stir up in the sense, as Peter says, to stir up your, your pure minds, um, that we don't sin, that we don't allow the opportunity for sin. He says, these things I've written unto you concerning them that seduce you. So once again, there's a warning here and we find Jesus repeatedly, Paul and uh, Peter, Jude and so on, all give these warnings. There are many out there that would seduce us. Now, I've said many a time, the danger with deception is that we think we can't be deceived. It's the same with the things that would seduce us. We, we, uh, you know, our guards are, are very great around the areas where we think we might be seduced. But it's always in those other areas that we weren't expecting it necessarily that those seductions come, that we get drawn to something of the world. And often it's something that's quite seemingly innocuous, and yet it has the power to draw us away from the Lord in one way or another. There's lots of things that compete for our time and for our attention. Well, we're told very clearly um, to be on our guard for those things, to reject those things, to recognize them for what they are. Uh, and there are people out there that would happily seduce us and pull us away from the things of God. They, they don't see the value or the benefit and they don't see why we should either. So we need to be on our guard. And John writes concerning those things. We've looked at some of those things already. Uh, and then finally, these things I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So that's speaking to us this morning, those that are saved, um, that you uh, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is such an important point. We shouldn't go through our Christian life with doubt, with uncertainty, with any anxiety even of whether or not we really are saved. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved. It's as simple as that. That's what the Bible tells us. If you believe with your heart, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, then you are saved. It's completed because of what he did, not because of what you can do or what you have done. It's not based upon how righteous you may feel yourself to be. It's based upon his completed work. And so this is another one of those lessons, in a sense, to remind us that your salvation is not based upon how you felt when you got out of bed this morning. It's not based upon, you know, only when you're praising God and you feel in a wonderful place spiritually. You know, it's not based upon those moments of doubt and despondency, which we all go through from time to time. You know, it's based upon Jesus. And that's why our salvation is secure. And that's why it's assured. And that's why John writes these things. We believe on the name of the Son of God. You may not feel necessarily always an emotional connection to those things, but the reality, the truth is that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've claimed him as your savior, then you can know that you have eternal life. And it says, and that you may believe on the name of the son of God. That means not just believing in him, but believing on his name. In other words, trusting in all that he has said, trusting in the promises that he has given. So those are the things that John gives us as his reasons for writing. Now, as we go into chapter three, we're going to find that John, as he's already done, starts to rattle off the things that we can know. So these are the things as believers we should be assured of. Now, he starts by saying uh, that we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So that's the first thing. Now, that, that speaks about us being transformed and changed uh, our uh, whole um our bodies will be given uh, over the, these earthly bodies, the corruptible bodies, as Paul says in Corinthians, uh, will disappear. We'll receive new bodies. We will be like him. He also says that we know that he was manifested to take away our sins, that Jesus came into this world. He was born 
as a human uh, of the line coming down all the way from Adam down through King David, ultimately to be born as a kinsman to redeem us, to take away our sins, to pay the price. Uh, we'll look at these verses in a short while. We also know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So now there's a kind of a, a conditional element to that. It's saying that if we love the brethren, we can know that because we'll see the evidence of that working out in our lives. We'll look at the verses in a moment. But also that we can know uh, the one who hates or does not love his brother does not have eternal life within him. Now, it's a very simple test. We'll explore it again when we get to verse 15. That actually, if you don't have love for the brethren, then there has to be a big question mark raised as to whether or not you are saved. But, you know, if you have love for the brethren, and I praise God in this fellowship, there's such a depth of love. There's such a depth of compassion and concern and care. Uh, and I've been a, a beneficiary of that, Joy and I, uh, over the years, even before I came down here as pastor. Years ago, uh, we had the privilege of being uh, friends of many of the people in the fellowship here. Uh, and we went through a very difficult time uh, personally and financially. Uh, and this fellowship just completely out of the blue, just just blew us away and supported us and helped us through a very difficult time. Uh, just such incredible love. Uh, and God has done a great work in our midst. Um, but that love that we have for the brethren and we've had the privilege as a fellowship of being able to help and support others uh, in times of need. And that's what we should be doing. But that the, the John tells us here is an evidence that we have eternal life within us we also know that he loves us because he laid down his life for us you know there is no debate or question uh, among anybody that's even uh, semi-educated regarding the reality that jesus died on the cross and of course scripture tells us that the reason jesus died was to pay the price for the sins of the whole world and john reminds us of that fact so we know that he loves us because we have the evidence that this innocent man willingly went to the cross that as they were knocking the banging the nails in as they were putting it up on the cross he didn't cry out he didn't complain he didn't protest that this was unjust or unfair he endured it all because he was doing it in our place that's why we know he loves us because he endured all of those things for us and again we know that we are of the truth if our love is shown by our deeds so there's a, a practical element. This is, again, very much what James tells us, that we are to uh, show our faith by our works. We're not saved by our works, but the demonstration that we have this faith comes out in the fact that we do things, that we want to do things for God. And so, again, our, if we are, uh, we can know that we are of the truth, that we're part of God's family, that we're part of this uh, incredible um bride that jesus is putting together for himself um if and our love is shown by our deeds now uh, the last one of these is we know that he abides in us through his spirit if we keep his commandments Let's spin that around the other way if you keep his commandments you know that it's the holy spirit enabling you to do so how do you know it well because you can't do it on your own you know, you can't even keep your own set of rules. You can try doing that sometime. You make yourself a list of rules that you think you're going to try and live by. Guarantee you by lunchtime you'll have broken most of them already. And that's our own set of rules. But when the Holy Spirit is within us, he gives us the ability and the power to live in a way that is godly, that is pleasing to God, 
and allows us to keep God's commandments. I'm sure that some of you are more than aware of times when the Holy Spirit has just given you a peace when everything else seemed to be crumbling around you or giving you some sort of um, confidence and assurance when otherwise there'd be doubt. Or God has given you some sort of tranquility in your heart and your mind when the circumstances demand that that you would lose it. You know, uh, certainly I've been in situations where things have happened that naturally in the flesh I would so easily be riled by something. And yet I'm suddenly aware of God's overwhelming peace. Well, this is what John is telling us, that the fact that you have that ability to keep his commandments, the things he calls you to do, the fact that we can love the brethren. And let's face it, we're a mixed group of people, aren't we? Naturally, in a worldly sense, we probably wouldn't all mix and meet together. And yet we do so and we do it with joy because there's a love in our hearts for each other. We love each other because of what Christ has done in us. We have this one common thread running through every situation, every conversation, every relationship with us as a, a group of people, that Jesus Christ is our Lord. It's that one thing that unites us and brings us all together. Okay. Now, John also gives us some actions and then some responses from those things. Firstly, if we have hope, that he will appear again. So that's the, the action in a sense, that we have a hope that Jesus is coming back again. Well, what John says, the response to that is quite simple, that we will purify ourselves or live a pure life in heart and mind. We'll see that in verse three. OK, so if we have this hope that he's coming back, if it's real and genuine and we really believe it, it will affect the way we live our lives. We'll be wanting to be living a pure life in expectation that he could return at any minute before the end of this service, even or before the end of this coming week, certainly quite possibly before the end of this year. You know, it's an exciting prospect to think that the Lord is really coming. We read that, or Sarah read that verse from Psalm, uh, Psalms earlier for us. You know, and there's so many verses in Psalms that speak about the Lord coming to judge the earth, but also coming to rescue and to deliver his own people. Let's uh, carry on. We read that if we abide in him, now the key there is abiding. We'll talk about that in a moment a bit more. But quite simply, we will not sin. All right, let me just simply put it this way. When you are at church, now back in the day when we could meet together in a building and so on, you know, when we were at church uh, together, you, you don't feel like the temptation to sin. Or at least I'm sure pretty much for most of you, you don't. There's not the temptation to sin. Why? Because we are in a place where we're surrounded by the things of God. Well, that's in a sense, possibly a poor analogy, but ultimately when we are abiding with Christ, when we are conscious of our relationship with him, Actually, the desire for sin disappears. We don't want to sin. It's only when we move away from that position, when the things of the world start to cloud our mind, our heart, our judgment, that actually then the temptation to sin starts to become prominent again. Now, again, if we're told that if we are born of God, so that's the action, if we're born of God, we will not habitually sin. Now, this is a really key point we'll look at as we go through this. I'm not going to talk further now because we'll address it when we get there in a moment. Um, and also because he laid down his life for us, that's the action. Our response should be this, that we should be willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's a very simple, um, in a sense, cause and effect that Jesus has done this and our response is this. Jesus laid down his life for us individually. How could we not give up whatever it is that, that, that we would otherwise hold on to for the sake of our brethren? We should do everything we possibly can for each other to uphold them, to strengthen them, to encourage them and so on. John also says that if our heart's clean, so with a clean heart, 
will not fear God's gaze. Okay, God can look at us and there's nothing to censor. So if our heart's clean, that's the action, that we have a clean life, the response is quite simply that we don't fear. You know, a lot of believers go through periods where they feel that God is looking at them and condemning them and so on, and they're under judgment. No, certainly God doesn't allow the, his children to continue in sin. And it's very clear that we've already seen from Hebrews that God chastens those he loves. Okay, so God is a God that wants to draw us closer to him. And if there are things that are blocking that relationship, blocking our path, then God will remove those. And sometimes there has to be a bit of a painful experience we go through. Other times it's simply a realization. Um, but if our heart is clean, we don't have any concern with God looking into our lives and our heart because we want him to change us from the inside out. There's a few spiritual warnings we'll see as well in this chapter. Uh, whoever sins, we're told, has not seen or known him. Now, that's quite a statement because on one hand, you think, well, don't we all sin? So isn't it saying that we don't know him? Well, hopefully you've seen enough from what John's already written that we should have absolute confidence in our relationship. What it's saying is if you know him, then you won't sin. Now, I'll explain how this plays out because these are sometimes quite confusing verses because John, if you remember at the beginning, says if we say we have no sin in chapter one, we deceive ourselves. And yet here he's saying, if we do sin, we don't know him. Well, let's go through and we'll explain these. We're also told that he that commits sin is of the devil. Well, this again, we almost seem to be a kind of a contradiction. Then we're told that whoever does not righteousness is not of God. So if you're not doing that which is righteous and holy and, and for God's glory, we're told that we're not of God. Whosoever does not love his brother is not of God. So all of these things start to build. Whoever does not love his brother, we're told, abides in death. And then finally, if you see a brother in need and you fail to act, it's a demonstration that God is not in you. Now, all of these are quite scary because we could probably look at every single one of those and go, but hang on a minute. There are times I know certainly that I sin. And if, if I sin, is it saying that I'm of the devil? And, you know, if I am um, not always doing righteousness, is it saying I'm not of God and, and so on? Well, John is very clear. We'll build this, this as we go through. So let's start in verse one and see what John has to say. And we'll look at it all in context. First of all, behold, this is a great statement there. It is really see, perceive, know, understand this. He says, what manner of love? Now, the word there for love is agape. Agape, you're probably familiar already. This, there's four Greek words um, that we translate as love. Uh, the English is not particularly descriptive because we could say that, you know, I love my wife, but I also love guitars. Um, I, you know, there's a different love um, for those two things you can appreciate. Um, uh, yes, I, I love my wife more than I love my guitars, just to clarify that. Um, but, you know, we, we only have the one word in the English. Um, but in the Greek, there's four different words for love. The word that's used here is agape, and it just speaks to being given over to. Uh, it speaks of that unconditional love. And so this makes it even more uh, astounding, really, what John says, behold, what manner of agape or what manner of unconditional love now if it's unconditional it's unconditional but really john is saying just just consider the magnitude of the love that the father has bestowed upon us this is what john is trying to do just trying to convey that magnitude and the character of god's love for us now as we go into a new year whatever doubts or fears or concerns you've got just let this verse really permeate your thinking Okay, behold what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed. That, that idea bestowed here uh, it's, uh, it comes from the Greek word didome uh, and it's to give something to someone uh, it's of one's own accord to give some uh, give one something to his advantage uh, it also talks about bestowing a gift and I love this it's as part of the understanding of the the Greek word to give what is due or obligatory to pay wages or reward now when I read that, first of all, I thought, well, does that apply? I thought, of course it applies. You see, God is giving something to us that he owes us. God is giving something to us is like wages or reward. And you think, well, well, but what have I done to earn it? And the answer is you've done nothing to earn it. But Jesus did everything. Jesus did everything to purchase this love for you that the Father now gives you as your due because you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture that because of what Christ has done, the love of the Father can unconditionally be given to you. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called, now notice this, the sons of of God. Now I've mentioned this a number of times in the past, but as we're on this verse, we need to highlight it again. Um, that modern translations often translate this, uh, that we should be called the children of God. Now in, in the Greek, if you look at the, 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 the words behind this, it's not a wrong translation. But it's, it's missing something um, to say the children of God. The word is translated children in other places, but typically it has that male idea behind it. And the reason it's important to understand that we should be called, whether you're male or female, the sons of God is because the sons, the firstborn particularly, was the one who would inherit. They would be given a double portion. And so the fact that you, whether you're male or female, are classed as the firstborn means that God is giving you a double portion. It says, therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Well, this is again that the idea of sons of God is used in scripture to refer to a direct creation of God. Now, it's used in Genesis regarding the angels in Genesis 6, 2 and 4. And the book of Job, it also in chapter 1, verse 6 and chapter 38, verse 7. The angels are in view there as God's creating in verse uh, chapter 38, verse 7. All the sons of God shout for joy. The angels, they're, they're declaring, they're shouting God's praises uh, as he's creating the heavens and the earth. So the idea of a son, the sons of God, the, the, the way it's used in scripture always refers to a direct creation of God. Now, of course, Adam was a direct creation of God. Eve wasn't in that sense a direct creation of God. She was brought out of Adam. Eve was brought out of Adam. And every subsequent human being has come from that line. Jesus, of course, was uh, in his physical state. The body was uh, a direct creation of God. Of course, Jesus was eternal. Jesus is not created. Uh, although that phrase, the firstborn, is speaking of position in regard to Jesus. Um, but in regard to us, when we are born again, we become a direct creation of God. We become in that position that Adam was right at the beginning. We are literally recreated as we should have been in the beginning, body, soul, spirit. Now, the spirit, of course, that we receive is not an, an, our own spirit, that which like Adam had, is the Holy Spirit that is given to us of God. And actually, we're in a better position now than Adam was originally, because, of course, we have our body, the physical part, our soul, which is who we are, our heart and mind. But then the spirit that we have is God's Holy Spirit. 
Again, believers who are born of God receive the inheritance and position of the firstborn. Now, there's a number of uh, references there. You remember, of course, with Ishmael and with Isaac, actually Ishmael was born first. But Isaac was the one who had been promised of God. So God counts Isaac as the firstborn. He is the one that receives the inheritance. Of course, Ishmael is given something and he's sent away. But Isaac receives the, the firstborn portion, as it were. Jacob and Esau. You remember the account. Esau is quite happy to sell his birthright for uh, a bowl of porridge, effectively. Um, and of course, as a result of that, uh, he just despises it. He's, God's displeased with him because of his attitude. Jacob sought that. He wanted that position. And so Jacob ends up with that blessing. Of course, uh, with Rebecca as well, they end up deceiving old Isaac when his eyes are failing. And Jacob goes in and gets that blessing. Uh, the blessing of the firstborn. Uh, we see it also in Exodus chapter 4, 22, where God says that Israel are as his firstborn. He protects them. It's because of that and because of the way the Egyptians had dealt with God's firstborn, i.e. Israel, that God brings the judgment upon the firstborn of all the land of Egypt. In Numbers 13, verse 13, uh, also Deuteronomy 21, 16 through 17, it speaks there again of the right of the firstborn and that the firstborn would inherit a double portion. So the summary of this first verse, behold, this incredible love, this unconditional love that God has given you as your wages because of what Christ has done. He's earned it, but you get it that we should be called the sons of God, that we are now a direct creation of God through his spirit incredible but then the statement of course is that therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not you know we are not of the world's family any longer and the world doesn't recognize us as its own uh, which is is good i mean we don't want to be part of this world um the living bible translates this but since most people don't know god naturally they don't understand that we are his children the second verse goes on behold uh, sorry beloved uh, now are we the sons of god so this is like building on this so we know this now we are the sons of god but then it says it does not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is you know in corinthians paul says that we, we see through a glass darkly it's like we're looking through a cloudy window and we can't quite see what's on the other side we can make out certain things, but the, the definition is not there. Well, that's how we look at the moment. Or it's like looking into a, 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 a poor reflective surface. You can't quite see your reflection as you want to. Well, that's what it's like right now. But when Jesus appears, when we get to see him face to face, this will be at the time of the rapture. We're going to be changed. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. Um that we will be transformed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, these old corruptible bodies are going to be done away with and we're going to be given new bodies fit for eternity. And we will be like Jesus and we will see him as he is. And I think this is the, the most incredible thing. Um, Paul says that we're going to know as we are known. But I think the most important thing here uh, is not just that we're going to be transformed and that we're going to receive the glorious bodies. That's all incredible. But the most amazing thing is that we will be able to see Jesus as he really is. Notice that last part of the verse. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, James and the disciples and so on, when they were, when Jesus was on earth, they didn't see Jesus in all his glory. In fact, we of course have 
Um, um, Peter, James and John, this is the, a different James, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, they got to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in a way that none of the other disciples had done. And that was an incredible experience for them. But even then, they didn't get to see him in all of his glory. It's not until you get to books like Revelation and chapter 1, John there sees this vision of Jesus. And maybe John writes this, it seems to be that this, as we said earlier in our study right at the beginning, that this may well have been written after Revelation had been written. John had experienced all those things. And John says, yeah, you're going to get to see Jesus as he really is. And I wonder whether with John, there was, there was a little glint in his eye thinking, you know, I, I, I've just had a glimpse of that. And it's amazing. John falls at his feet as if he's dead. This incredible image of Jesus is presented in Revelation chapter one and all of his magnificence and brilliance and glory and brightness and so on. You know, that's going to be incredible. We get to see the one whom we've prayed to, the one who intercedes for us and we'll get to see him as he really is and it will be breathtaking um that's why we'll need new bodies these, these earthly bodies wouldn't, wouldn't cope we'd have a heart attack immediately um but we get new bodies because that we need them uh, just to cope with looking at jesus Isaiah, of course, similar situation, um, just overwhelmed by the presence of God. And Ezekiel has images of heaven, Daniel and so on. And you just get this glimpse of what Jesus really is going to be like. They were told, and every man that has this hope. OK, so the hope that we've just been talking about, that we're going to see him, that we're going to see him in his glory. Everyone has this hope in him, purifies himself, even as he, as Jesus, is pure. And this, of course, is the, the way it should be for us, that we should want to live a life that is pleasing to God because it's not going to be long that we get to meet Jesus. You know, and it's because we believe this, it should change our behavior. I'm sure uh, you've heard the story many a time when I was younger and mum and dad used to go away on holiday. Occasionally, uh, when we were, we were older children, um, and uh, Katie, my sister, and myself, uh, when we were kind of late teenage years, early 20s, I guess, we were still living at home, um, and they would leave us in charge of the house, and uh, the day before they come back, or even sometimes the day we knew they were coming back, we suddenly look around and realize that, you know, there was things that need to be washed up, like pretty much everything we'd used over the last week, uh, and the, the floor needed to be hoovered, and cushions tied in and put back, you know, and so suddenly we get everything ready, because we didn't want mum and dad coming home and saying, what have you done with the house? So we, we purposely made that distinct effort to try and get everything clean and pure and right as it should be. Well, that's, you know, a poor example, but that's the way it should be in our lives because we know Jesus is coming. We should be getting ready. You know, I'm sure that you're also familiar with that poem. Um, you know, if Jesus came to your house today, you know, what would you do differently if Jesus were to come to your house? If he was to be your guest this lunchtime, what would you have to move off the shelf or hide or put away? You know, hopefully there isn't anything, but if there is, this is the whole idea of what John's saying. Let's purify not just the outward things, but the in, in, inward things as well. Then we're told whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Now, this is the biblical definition of sin. What is sin? It is breaking God's law. It's the violation of God's law. Now, not just the 613 commandments that were given to the Jews. Now, of course, God's law is encapsulated in all of that. The Ten Commandments being the summary. Uh, and really, the Ten Commandments do give us a great summary of God's standard, of God's righteousness. But ultimately, it's, it's God's standard, regardless, that we see throughout Scripture. Any violation of that is sin. Sin is that transgression 
of the Lord. Transgression meaning to cross a line. Sin, of course, is missing God's righteous standard. The sin, that old archery term, to miss the target. So we're told whoever sins transgresses. Yeah, if you miss the target, you by default cross the line. And also uh, the law for the sin is the transgression of the law. As I said earlier, we can't even keep our own laws, let alone God's. But notice it's not determined by our standard. You know, it doesn't matter whether you agree or approve of God's law or God's standard. It is God's standard by definition. You know, and ignorance of the law is no excuse. You know, just because you don't understand God's law uh, doesn't mean that you'll be able to wave the flag and say, well, I didn't know that. So you get let off it. No. You know, we're actually told in the book of Romans, chapter two, verse 15, that the law of God is actually written upon the conscience of man. So we know instinctively that which is right and that which is wrong. It's why a young child uh, will do something and they'll look to their parent when they've done it as to simply say, am I going to be in trouble now? Because they know they've crossed the line. You know, I happen to see it uh, with my youngest at the moment. She's going through that stage uh, where every now and again you see a little cheeky look on her face. She's done something that she knows she shouldn't have done. And she gives you that little look to say, have I got away with it or not? Well, you know, it just tells you that the conscience, even in a child, tells them what is right and what is wrong. And it's the same with us. So we know what sin is. And we're told, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. This is a beautiful, concise summary of the entire gospel. You know, that Jesus was manifested. Jesus, the third person of the Trinity that had been from everlasting, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus took upon human form. We've obviously just celebrated Christmas time. We typically remember Jesus uh, being manifested in human form, uh, but he was manifested as we saw, as the shepherds ratified that Jesus was born as a perfect lamb, as a lamb to be offered up in the temple some eight miles away in Jerusalem for sacrifice. That's what the shepherds did. They looked after those lambs for sacrifice. They came. The reason the shepherds were chosen is because they had to acknowledge that Jesus was the perfect lamb and was able to be offered as a sacrifice for sin. This is verse, verse 1 John 3 5. It's a great summary of the gospel. He was manifested to take away our sins, but you know, he himself was sinless. There was no sin. He was without blemish. What a beautiful summary. And again, the offer is available to all mankind, but only by accepting this personally can it accomplish its intended purpose in your life. Just a little note here as well. Um, I hope that you're, you're doing so as well. But uh, if you're reading through the Bible this year, trying to read through the whole Bible in a year, um, you'll have just read, no doubt, through Genesis or the early portion. You know, I was reading this the other day again, um, you know, and I'm always struck by the fact that God's dealing with Adam's and Eve's sin uh, is by telling them that death is going to be the result. And it's so gracious. We don't think of death as that, as such a thing. But death just speaks of God's grace. Because had God given some other punishment, then potentially man would have gone on forever in an unfallen state. Now, this is why God sends these cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life, because the worst possible scenario would have been if Adam and Eve, after eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would have then gone and eaten from the tree uh, of life, because had they have done that, that tree of life would have given them eternal life. But they'd have been eternally lost 
and dead in trespasses and sins. And that would have been a dreadful state. So by introducing death, God introduces the mechanism by which we can be saved. Because then an innocent substitute can come, die in our place, and we can be covered by that blood, just as Adam and Eve were covered in the clothes or the, the skins of animals. If you notice, God provides the first blood sacrifice. These these uh, presumably lambs, we're not told specifically, but we know that it's these skins of animals, and it's plural, one for each of them, were, were shed. The blood was clearly shed so that they could be clothed with this covering. And of course, that's all looking forward to what Jesus would ultimately do, that Jesus would then be that covering to come to die as an innocent substitute in our place. So death is this incredible act uh, on God's behalf of grace to provide a way that we can be saved, that one dying in our place could then purchase our freedom from sin for eternity. Told verse six. Um, whosoever abideth in him now this is the verse we mentioned earlier uh, sinneth not whosoever sinneth has not seen him neither known him and of course the key of this verse really is the whole abiding and the the word again the greek idea is to stay in a particular place or a state you know if we do abide in him then we don't give opportunity for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof it's very difficult uh, to sin if you have the Bible in your hand at the time. Uh, you know, if you're feeling resentment or bitterness uh, or arrogance, pride, any of those kind of fleshly things uh, from an emotional perspective, you know, pick up scripture, start reading through Psalms, start reading through any, read through Proverbs, wherever, you'll find that it's very difficult to hold on to those um, worldly, fleshly, sinful thoughts and, uh, and feelings. You know, if you have anger in your heart towards somebody, just pick up God's word and read it. If you abide in him, then we're told if you ever abide in him, you'll sin not. It is the greatest, the best antidote to sin that you can possibly have. Abiding in Christ. It just simply means running to him, staying there, maintaining that relationship with him. Don't ever put yourself in a position where you try and block your ears and don't want to hear what God has to say to you. <clears throat> the idea here as well uh, is that whoever habitually sins does not perceive God or know him because whoever sins has not seen him neither known him now john's already said that if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves so he's not saying if you slip up and sin then you don't know him because he's already made that clear that we do sin but we're to confess our sins what john's saying is if you habitually sin if it becomes a regular practice and that there's no repentance there's no remorse when you sin then it means that we don't know god and we, we don't really understand who he is, because once you do know God and you have that relationship with him, doesn't mean you won't ever sin. But it means that when you do sin, then you have an advocate. Jesus is our advocate with the father. We go to him and we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. It means that we can't carry on in sin. OK, it's very much what Paul says. In the book of Romans, you know, how, you know, what, what, the one who sins, how can you carry on in sin any longer? Um, you know, we should reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin. We can't enjoy sin once you become a, a, a partaker of Jesus Christ. The Living Bible translates this. Uh, but as for those who keep on sinning, they should realize this. They sin because they have never really known him or become his. So there's a warning for those that carry on in sin. 
It suggests that they haven't got that abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you have, it doesn't mean you won't sin, but it means you won't stay in that place of sin. You won't be content there. You won't find pleasure in it like the people in the world maybe would do. Now they're unable to stop sinning. That's the key. We can stop sinning because we can go to Christ. We resist the devil. He will flee from us and so on. But the people in the world do not have the power to resist it. So little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Uh, John refers to us here again as his beloved children, that little children, that expression we've seen already. You know, again, don't be deceived or tricked or fall into thinking that you might not be his. Right? Little children, let no man deceive you that if you are doing things that are righteous. OK, let's list some of those things. Fellowshipping like we're doing this morning. Reading God's word as we've been doing, as we're doing right now. You know, worshipping the Lord together, praying together. Those all would come under that, that bracket of doing that which is right with God. That's what righteousness is all about, being right with God. If you're doing those things, well, understand that you are righteous. And it's not your righteousness, it's that which Christ has done in you. Once again, don't be fooled by feelings, by emotions and so on. Don't ever think that you might not be good enough because it's never about you. It's about what he's done. And don't let your feelings rob you of the joy that you should have. See, the fact that there uh, is the fruit of righteousness in your life is evidence that you are his. And again, that fruit, as we've already said, is things that we've just mentioned, the things that we are being able to do together this morning. It's fruit of righteousness uh, and it's evidence that you are his, whether you feel it, whether you think it, whether you know it every week, every day, every moment. The reality doesn't change. Once you are Christ, you are his for eternity. Don't, again, ever trust feelings, good or bad. He that committeth sin, verse 8, is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. It's kind of self-explanatory, but, you know, we read again with the situation with Cain and with Abel. We'll look at this. John refers to that in a moment. That sin lieth at the door. That's what sin does. It doesn't want to let us go. Uh, and sin wants you to yield to its desire. Uh, the devil would love to pull you away. And he's a liar. We're told that he's a liar from the beginning. And he sins from the beginning. But it was for that purpose that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, he's done it in a cosmic scale, on a grand scale. Jesus has overcome Satan. He's defeated death. But Jesus will do it in your life. He'll overcome the works of the devil in your life by you abiding in him. Again, if you habitually commit sin and are happy therein and that's the key it demonstrates you've not been born of god and you have no power or control over sin in your life i praise god i think all of us this morning whilst we may sin from time to time we may stumble we may fall but we are not happy in sin we can't be content in it like the people in the world can and again they have no power or control over sin whereas we do Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Now, this is one of those verses that some people struggle with, but it's quite simply, you know, you have been born again of the spirit of God. The spirit of God cannot sin because it is the spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot sin any more than Jesus could sin or God could sin. And what is born in you is of the spirit of God. That new life in you cannot sin. It is incapable of sin. You know, there's questions sometimes people ask, you know, is there anything that God can't do? Yeah, God can't sin. 
and the new life in you cannot sin. And this is what Paul deals with, particularly in Romans 7 and elsewhere, that there's this battle. There's the flesh life, the old life, and there's the new life. The old life can sin, it does sin. But when it does, we have an advocate with the Father, we go confess our sins and so on. But the new life can't sin. And that's why we are to sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. That's why we are to abide in Christ, because in doing so, that new life cannot sin. For whoever is born of God does not commit sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So understand there are two natures within you. There is the godly nature born of God of the spirit and there is the worldly nature which is tainted all the way down from Adam with sin. And it's the new life that is to be uh, the life that we sow to, the life that we live. We, when we uh, have our baptism celebrations, we read that great verse that speaks about all things becoming new. We're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and so on. And that's how it should be. That old life we are to, to crucify, to put to death, not to live, not to feed it in any way. And that's a really key point. Don't feed it because it will thrive if you do. But we are to feed the spiritual life within us. And again, reading God's word daily, so important. Praying, even if it's only a short prayer. I think it was also Chambers made the comment was once um, that he doesn't pray for an hour at a time, but he never goes for more than an hour without praying. I love that because it's so simple that we don't need to have long, long, long times of prayer. It's good if you can and you feel led to do so great. But, you know, just a little prayer every now and again, a simple prayer, even just asking God for strength, for grace, for wisdom, whatever it is. Just constantly have that uh, habit of abiding in Christ, remaining with him. <clears throat> so, again, those who are born of God do not commit sin for his seed remains in, in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest. This is how we are made clear, clear, how made visible. And the children of the devil. This is how you know one from the other. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, there's a bit added to this now, building on this, speaking of this love that we should have for each other. And it's a very simple test of the genuineness of one's profession. Firstly, do you do righteousness? We've already said this morning, the fact that we're here is an indication that we do. Do you love your brother? Now, John is going to build on this now. He says, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. See, Cain offered the fruit of his own hands. That's religion. Abel offered the blood of an innocent sacrifice in place of his own. Okay, so he offered to God, not because he was a shepherd, but because God has said that blood is that which atones for sin, not our own efforts. And that speaks of relationship. Then marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Uh, you know, you see, we're now part of a different family and expect the world to hate you. I just want to read to you the Living Bible's paraphrase of these verses and the next as well. It says, we are not to be like Cain, who belonged to Satan and killed his brother. Why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing wrong and he knew very well that his brother life was better than his. So don't be surprised, dear friends, if the world hates you. 
Now, in a sense, it's not so much that Cain's life, that Abel's life was better because they both needed salvation. They both needed a savior. You don't get there because you're better than someone. But the last point is interesting because it builds on the idea of Cain and Abel. And then, so don't be surprised, dear friends, if the world hates you. That's the key that I wanted to get across there. You know, don't be surprised. Think of Cain and Abel. Think of the way that religion tries to do it by its own efforts, by the things we can do as opposed to relationships that's why the world doesn't like us no one likes to be told that you're not good enough that you can't do it and yet the gospel at its heart says that you cannot get right with god by your efforts john carries on and says we know this is another one of the we knows uh, we know that we have passed from death unto life notice that not hope guess pray wonder this is certain we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren see it's another simple test uh, the evidence that we have is that we love our brothers and sisters in christ and this is why we pray for the persecuted church around the world every time we meet together he that loves not his brother abides in death uh, you know there's another interesting use of that word abiding in death it's being linked to it drawing with it dwelling with it in a sense it's not a pretty picture whosoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, just want to read the paraphrase from the Living Bible. Anyone who hates his Christian brother is really a murderer at heart. And you know that no one wanting to murder has eternal life within him. You know, we shouldn't have any hatred for Christian brothers, even if there are people that are uh, in a different doctrinal position or say things that we don't agree with. We should still have this love. You know, we're going to spend eternity with a lot of people that have got slightly different views or ideas about certain things in the Bible than we have. You know, but if they've been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, then they are brothers and sisters and we need to show them love and grace. There are many believers that may not have had the privilege of seeing things in God's word that we've seen. You know, but there was once a time that we didn't understand things. There was once a time that we had errors in our doctrine. I'm not saying we've got it all right now because we've still got so much to learn. But we need to love each other and show grace to each other. And there should certainly never be any kind of hatred in our heart to each other. Again, hereby we perceive, we know the love of God, because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Oswald Chambers said, if we love Jesus Christ personally and passionately, I'm speaking of abiding with him, I can serve humanity. Notice what Oswald Chambers says is the key to serving others. It's being in that abiding relationship with Jesus. You can't do it yourself. Uh, just Let me pause on this quote. Just remind you of the Mary and Martha scenario. You know, Mary is there work, uh, serving Jesus, worshipping him. Martha's getting so stressed because she wants other people to come and help her in the kitchen and get stuff ready. You know, uh, and if you try and serve somebody out of that desire to do it, it will get very frustrating very quickly. If you do it as an act of worship to Jesus, then it becomes a joy. Whatever you do, whether it be back in the day when we used to put out chairs before the service or make teas and coffees, whatever you do should never be a chore. Whatever we do, we should do it as unto the Lord. Let me read the quote again. If I love Jesus Christ personally and passionately, I can serve humanity, even though people may treat me like a doormat. The secret of a disciple's life is devotion to Jesus Christ. And the characteristic of that life is its seeming insignificance and its meekness. Yet it is like a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. It will spring up and change the entire landscape. You said the other day, or when we were talking about our 
the new year and the way that God will use us if we just simply allow him to do so. You know, it all comes from that abiding relationship with Jesus. But God will do so much in us and through us and with us. And one of those things will simply be the love in our hearts for each other that God will stir for us. Verse 17, but whoso hath the world's goods and sees his brother have need uh, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? It's a rhetorical question. John's saying, you know, if you've got resource, if you've got finance, if you've got things practically that you could give to a brother and you see them in need and then you don't, well, how can we say the love of God is in us? Again, just read to you the paraphrase. Uh, but if someone who is supposed to be a Christian has money enough to live well and sees a brother in need and won't help him, how can God's love be within him? Little children, let us stop just saying we love people and let us really love them and show it by our actions. The whole actions speak louder than words thing. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him so again this assurance comes from the lives that we live by his grace as he works as we abide in him for if our heart condemn us god is greater than our heart and knows all things again don't rely on feelings and emotions god is greater than those things rely on the truth and the promises in god's word beloved if our heart condemn us not well that's a good thing then we have confidence toward God. You know, if we're in that place and we're abiding with him, then we know that we don't, we are not condemned. Our heart doesn't condemn us because there's nothing to censor. And then we can go to God and we can seek and ask and receive. We told that whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. This is the, the Christian life as it should be lived. And then the last two verses for this morning. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. It's very simple, isn't it? That we should believe, just trusting on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. Speaking of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And hereby we know, this is another thing we know, and John concludes the chapter with this, hereby we know that he abideth in us. Now, this is incredible because we've been reading about our need to abide in him. But then we're told that he abides in us by the spirit which he's given us. And this is one of the great truths, this assurance, this guarantee of our inheritance, as Paul puts it, that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So the key to this chapter, all of this, that we sin not and everything else, that we love the brethren, is simply abiding in Jesus and he will do that work in us. Don't allow the flesh even a moment. Just remove yourself from anything that will pull you away from that abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Every day, try and start by just reading something simple from God's word, whether you have a devotional you go through, whether you just uh, read a portion of scripture, whether you just read one verse Read something to start the day. Let your mind and your heart start with the thoughts about Jesus and end the day in the same way with the Lord at the center. May God richly bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning just to be reminded of your incredible agape, unconditional love for us. Lord, that we have been given that position of the firstborn, that you'll give us a double portion. Lord, we don't even get to experience all of that yet. And yet that promise is there awaiting us. But Lord, in these days that remain, Lord, may we learn to abide with you, to live with you, to dwell with you, Lord, every moment of every day. 
And Lord, when we get caught up with the busyness and the pace of life and the pressures and the stresses, oh Lord, never let us go. Continually put things in our path that bring our heart and our mind back in line with yours. Lord, keep us focused on you looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.